Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or that what is offered to an idol is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and eat the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. And Father, we ask as we continue now to worship in this time together, that by your spirit you would lead and direct us, and that you would speak to us, Lord, personally and prophetically, just timely things that we need to hear from the word of God by the spirit of God. So prepare us, Lord, and speak to our hearts. We ask expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, as God's people in the church, I think it's good for us from time to time to ask ourselves what really matters most to us. What is it that motivates our choices? I would say it's a fair thing to think that it should be at least honoring God, as well as helping people. I think that should be a primary concern to all of us as the people of God, honoring God and helping people. And the remainder of chapter 10, all the way into chapter 11, verse 1, which we hope to look at this morning, is about glorifying God and helping people. Glorifying God and helping people. Now, if you remember by backdrop, earlier in chapter 8, a little ways back, Paul was addressing how the church should navigate living among the culture at that time, which particularly among the city of Corinth was dominated by worshiping idols. There was a lot of altars and temples to false gods, and much of the society and even how it functioned was connected to these pagan temples and to the sacrifices that were made at these pagan temples. Let me refresh your memory. In chapter 8, we read this. Now, concerning things uh, about eating meat that has been offered to idols, well, we all know that an idol is not really a god, Paul said. There's only one god. It's true that we can't win God's approval, he said, by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge, eating in a temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to then violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something that they believe is wrong. You are sinning against Christ. So 
if what I eat causes a believer to sin, I will never eat meat again, Paul said, as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Remember, Paul was addressing that because in the city of Corinth there, there were these Uh, temples to other gods there were altars to these greek gods and they would make sacrifices to them and in the sacrifices as people made multiple sacrifices a day there ended up being a lot of leftover meat in the process of that and then they had to figure out something to do with that meat and so that meat then oftentimes was either uh, served or sold at a cheap price, either right outside the temple area, kind of a little you know cafe outside of Zeus or whatever, that altar, or sometimes it was just in the local meat markets and it was sold to the butchers and then they would just sell off the meat as a way to provide food for the community. And so people became sensitive to this whole issue of, well, what if I eat meat that was particularly offered to an idol I don't know if I feel comfortable with that because it had something to do with demons at one point. And so some people were very hypersensitive to the fact of that and they wanted nothing to do with it. Other people looked at it as, look, you know, God's in control of all things. It doesn't change the nutrients or the value of the meat for nutrition. Uh, I don't, I haven't run a problem. I don't care what the meat was used for. If it's a cheap piece of filet mignon, I'm buying it and I'm eating it. And it didn't bother their conscience. And so there's this kind of this struggle and Paul was addressing, look, be careful in the midst of those things because people have different convictions. And Paul there was addressing how he didn't want them to stumble one another over things that they chose to do or not to do in relation to that as sort of a a freedom that they had. Well, Paul now begins to kind of come back to the subject and he gives the balance here because some were also becoming a little bit too casual spiritually. And it seems this is what Paul's now beginning to address, that they were kind of starting to use grace and the freedoms they had in Christ that they understood as kind of a loophole to begin to kind of pursue unhealthy things. And they were kind of justifying that while being a Christian, it was kind of okay to participate in some dark things because they had freedom in Christ. And they were kind of just taking the pathway a little bit off track too far. And this was beginning to dishonor God as well as harming others. And Paul, it seems, now starts to address this. Now, having just identified in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 10 that Israel's history proved that they were turning away from God into idols, and in so doing, dishonoring God as well as harming themselves, Paul says to us here in verse 14, look at it with me again. He says, therefore, my beloved, seeing Israel's history, he says, flee from idolatry. He says, therefore, in light of what we saw and learned from Israel's history, I'm lovingly trying to warn you that you would not go down the same path spiritually. And Paul here, notice, calls them my beloved, which indicates his care for them, that Paul's not angry here. He's saying the things that he's saying in this next section out of loving concern for the believers. He says they're flee. The idea means to run away, to seek to escape or avoid at all costs. And what does he tell them to run away from? Idolatry, which is honoring any other thing before God. See, there will always be things trying to have control over our lives instead of God having ultimate control over our lives. And those things can become idolatry in any form. When anything becomes more important to us Uh, when anything gets more uh, devotion from us, or when something starts to have more control over us, 
than God himself, well, that begins to become a form of idolatry. And it's something, therefore, we always have to kind of try and seek to avoid, to not give in, to flee from idolatry happening in our spiritual life. Paul says, verse 15, I speak to you as to wise men, so judge for yourselves what I say. So he's appealing to them not to take offense to what he's beginning to talk to them about and kind of turn him off, but instead he's saying, look, please don't just dismiss me if what I say pricks your heart a little bit. He's saying, please listen to me, hear me out, uh, make a judgment on this. Paul knew they had wisdom from the spirit of God within them. They had wisdom from the word of God that they had access to. So he encourages them to simply consider that wisdom in their reasoning on these matters to come to good conclusions in their judgments. He says, verse 16, the cup of blessing, which we bless as Christians, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? He says, and the bread, which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Verse 17, for we, though many, he says, are one bread and one body, for we all are partakers, sharers of that one bread. So what Paul's doing here is he's talking about one of the banqueting tables the Christian knows, which was the table of the Lord's Supper. And Paul here in verse 16 and 17 reminds them of the deeply unifying experience of partaking of the elements of what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting, the word communion that Paul uses here in verse 16, it's actually that Greek word koinonia or, or koine. It's the idea there of the, the actual Greek word speaks of a sharing, a partnership or a shared experience. That's that idea of that term, that koinonia. It speaks of having a shared experience. And that's exactly how Paul's using the word here as he's addressing the Lord's Supper, that the elements of the broken bread, which he speaks about in verse 16, signify, we know, the broken body of Jesus and his suffering, and the cup of blessing that we partake of in uh, the Lord's Supper represents the blood of Christ that was shed in death to forgive our sin, and our partaking of those symbolic elements are deeply meaningful to us as the Lord's people. There's something that have great significance there's a powerful unifying experience that brings intimacy between us and the Lord when we partake of that supper, as well as a unifying experience amongst each other as the Lord's children sharing it together. And when we break the bread and bless the cup and partake of it, we're indicating our union to the Lord Jesus and his work that we believe in and that we've embraced it and we now have a shared experience with Christ and also our union with one another as God's children, that spiritually we have now been unified and become one in the spirit through our relationship to Christ and having the same father spiritually as God's children. That's why Paul says in verse 17 that though we are many, we're individuals, we are one bread and one body, the idea is spiritually and mystically, for we are partakers of that one bread. So partaking of that meal of the Lord's table is not insignificant. Paul's building the point here. It's deeply meaningful. And when we do it, that's how we should do it. We're proclaiming our desire to share in all that Jesus offers. And through communion, we experience the Lord more fully and more deeply. There's a very powerful experience that we're intending uh, to, to experience with our Lord in a meaningful way. It's an act of us drawing close to him and receiving from him and reminding ourselves of our unification with him spiritually in a bond. Paul says, verse 18, 
observe Israel as well, he says, after the flesh. The nation of Israel are not those who eat the bread, or excuse me, eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. So he shows how this unifying experience was even true throughout the time of the nation of Israel's history as they had the sacrificial system when they brought their animal sacrifices to the altar to worship, what would always take place is a part of the meat would be burned on the altar unto the Lord. And then another portion of that same meat usually was eaten uh, by the worshiper and oftentimes their family members as well. Uh, so again, the idea there was as you ate that meat at the altar and with the sacrifice, the idea was that you were having a shared experience with God. It was kind of like having a fellowship meal together with God. And that was the idea as you ate this meal, it was like you were sharing a meal with God and you were bonding with God, spending time with him. And that experience with the altar was sort of a unifying thing of your life together with God as they did it as an act of worship. And again, Important for us to understand, because it kind of helps us grasp the mindset a little bit more. We need to understand eating was a very big thing to people in that culture. Very, very different than our modern American society. And there are places in the world today still where eating is a much more significant thing to them, having a meal together, than it kind of is to us in our American culture. You need to remember meals were more than just to them eating food. It was viewed as an intimate shared experience to partake of a meal together with another person because that same food they believe that same food is entering into both of us and becoming a part of both of us. And so now, therefore, in their mind, their, their mentality was we are being united together as one. Because we are having a shared experience and the same thing is becoming a part of the both of us. So we're becoming a part of one another. And we now have this bonding and this intimate shared experience and our lives are being unified through that meal that we both partook of. That is why, understand, you see in the word of God, why Jews and Gentiles who hated each other because of ethnic and different perspectives in their religious beliefs, why they despised one another, but more than that, remember why they would not want to eat together because of this mentality. The idea was their racial and ethnic prejudices towards one another. They didn't want to unify themselves with one another in any way, so they, they wouldn't want to eat together. That's why as well we see in the Gospels why the religious leaders, remember, would get so incensed and angry when Jesus would do what? If he'd have a meal with people who they deemed as sinful or unworthy. And it bothered them. Again, the reason being they understood in their mindset that something beyond just the physical happened, and that was their strong conviction. And they held very strong to this conviction. You are unifying yourself with another person when you have a shared meal together with them. Now, Paul understood how deeply meaningful this was to people, and that's why he's bringing this up. Interesting, that's why no doubt God gave us communion the way he did. So again, this idea of the sharing together. And Paul knew this would be something that was very significant to the people. And so therefore, in light of that, that's why he's beginning to address these things in this way. Paul says, verse 19, what am I saying then? In other words, what am I getting to? That an idol is anything or that what is offered to an idol is anything. So Paul knew this was going to bring questions to their minds about meat that had been offered to idols and false gods 
that from time to time, people were eating from the altars of these different temples. Now, again, earlier in chapter 8, as we just alluded to, Paul had said, look, we know that these idols that people are worshiping, they're just dead statues. They're just dead, cold stone statues. And we know as Christians with knowledge, there is only one true God and therefore, we should remember that. So the question would then be, so then why is Paul concerned about participating in the practices of idolatry if they're just false gods? Paul's going to begin to say, am I trying to say that there's some significance to these uh, you know, banqueting meals offered to idols in these temples? You know, n- not at all. That's not the issue. What Paul's going to say, it's the heart issue behind what they're doing in that religious worship. That's something that you don't want to begin to engage in if you're going to begin to flirt with his idea of beginning to partake of that meat and kind of begin to cross a boundary. That's why Paul says, look what he says, verse 20. Rather, this is my concern, that the things which these Gentiles, the idea is used in the unsaved sense, that these Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to have fellowship, there's our word again, partnership, a shared experience with demons. He says, this is what my concern is there. He says, verse 20, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake, participate in the Lord's table and the table of demons. So Paul's concern is that Christians in the church of Corinth we're beginning to kind of just get very comfortable participating, apparently, in some dark practices that the unsaved world did and almost wanting to dismiss it like it was really not that big of a deal. It really wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, just it's kind of all this all fake stuff anyway. And what's the big deal? Yeah, it's a little dark. It's a little mystical, magical. But I mean, it's just it's just it's all fake stuff anyway. And Paul was getting a little bit apprehensive as God's people to them being naive to the spiritual reality that there are spiritual and supernatural forces behind these things and that they needed to maintain a proper awareness of the demonic realm of evil that was at work. He mentions here demons, and of course demons are fallen angelic spirits that work in cooperation with the devil in rebellion to God trying to rob, kill, and destroy people's lives on this earth to keep people from right relationship with God and to follow their evil influence instead. So being conscious of this, Paul's saying we need to steer clear of these kind of things, especially as God's people. Now, again, as he uses the word, as I said, they're Gentiles in our verse, that these Gentiles giving these offerings He's using the term there in reference to the pagan world or the unsaved world, not in relationship with God. And 1 John tells us that the whole world, that is the unsaved world in the system, lies under the sway or the influence of the wicked one. That is, those who don't know God, the spiritual reality is there are spiritual forces of darkness behind much of what's happening in the Gentile, pagan, unsaved world system. And in the city of Corinth particularly, They were engaged in various worship practices all among the community. There were things like this that went on. And Paul's saying, look, these things that they're doing, they don't honor God. And he's saying the bigger concern is they are actually, Paul says, they're actually sacrifices to demons, to the demonic realm. 
And what Paul was wanting to imply to them among the unsaved, he's saying, look, whether the unsaved world is blinded to it or if they're consciously willfully doing it, the bottom line he's saying is they are literally offering sacrifices, whether knowingly or unknowingly, to demonic spirits, to, to evil spirits that are behind the influence of these very things that they're participating in. He references there in verse 21, the table of demons. And what he's referring to there with the table of demons is there were these large banquets, these feasts that would take place that they would participate in that were dedicated to honoring these false spirits and these false gods, which were nothing other than demonic spirits behind these false gods and idolatry that were propagating these things among people to steal their worship away from the one true and living God. And what Paul was wanting to press home here is these false religions, Paul's saying, look, wake up. They're not a game. It's not a game, he's saying. There are truly demonic influences behind these other false religions and idolatrous worship practices that are taking place. And there are very real and dark supernatural forces that are at work behind these things, which can influence as well as harm people's lives. And Paul's saying here, my concern is, I don't want you to become involved, he said, in what they're doing, not because of an issue of meat. Paul says, the bigger issue I'm concerned with is participation in a shared experience with demons, participating in evil activities in such a way where you in some way, it's like you're partying with the enemy of your soul. It's like you're beginning to engage in things with demonic spirits that want to overthrow your king. I mean, would you want to party with the enemy that wants to overthrow and betray your king? No, no servant would want to do that. He says that's incredibly dangerous as well as dishonorable. That's why Paul draws this line of separation spiritually in verse 21 there, saying, look, we can't participate in both worlds as God's kids, he's saying. Look what he says in verse 21 again. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and then turn around and drink the cup of demons. You can't partake of the Lord's table and then also want to sit down at the table of demons as well. Paul says, as a believer, we have to decide where at times our spiritual allegiance is going to be, either with God or with the realm of darkness. We cannot drink from both cups, he says. You can't eat at both tables. You can't want to, he's saying to the Corinthians, look, you can't want to live like God's child and be blessed with partaking of the things at the Lord's table and then turn around the very next day and, and think it's okay to go indulge in the pleasures of what the devil sets at his table and be participating in these dark things. And go, ah, it's no big deal. It's just fun. Yeah, I know it's kind of dark, but it's kind of just, just fun. It's just entertainment. It's just fun. I know it's not real. And Paul's saying it is real. That's the point. There's a dark demonic influence behind some of those things. And he says, uh, I wouldn't go sitting down having dinner at the devil's table. And he's saying, look, in the same way as God's people, he's saying there at the church of Corinth, he says, you can't be trying to drink from the power of the Lord's spirit and then also want to go off and get drunk with the demons at the local bar at Corinth. He's saying this isn't something that's very healthy or wise to do. We need to have spiritual loyalty and a, a child of God can't serve two masters. Jesus himself said that. And Paul wanted them to recognize this betrayal to agree that would be happening. Now, look, even for us, the same applies still because indeed there are available to us today still 
plenty of things to participate in, to engage in, in the unsaved world that are dark and defiled and that are dishonoring to our Lord as our king. And whether we want to see it or not, we need to remember there are certain activities that are being directed by dark, demonic, supernatural forces behind those very activities. And we don't want to be quickly just dismissing participating in such things. Paul's saying, look, you don't want to start sharing and participating in the practices of things that demonic spirits are involved in. You want to steer clear of that stuff and not be doing that in such a way where as well it could bring dishonor to your king or, or personal hurt into your life. Look what Paul says, verse 22, in light of this. He says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul kind of you know, becomes strong in his language here. He says, are we willing to provoke our king Jesus and his jealous anger and his jealous love towards us because of how much he cares about us? One translation of this says, what? Are we daring to arouse our Lord's jealousy? Again, Jesus is not only our king, but as the church, we're, we're the bride of the king. And, you know, the reality being this, to commit spiritual adultery against Jesus as our king is not just to provoke his jealousy or dishonor him as a king. It, it's like a queen sleeping with, you know, the, the king from another territory and thinking and not only is it going to dishonor her king, but that's her husband at the same time. And this would arouse a tremendous degree, right, of, of jealous anger. You've not only dishonored me as your king, but you've dishonored me as my wife, as my bride. And he's saying, look, this to a degree spiritually is what we do. And he says, if we're betraying the loving devotion of our king, it's not a light matter. And he says, we want to stay sensitive to this. And our Lord, he says, perhaps may it need to at times angrily respond because he jealously loves us. He says, are we stronger than he? Can we dishonor him and think we're going to then withhold his strong response to our betrayal if we do that as his church or as his people from time to time? Paul's saying certainly not. And what Paul's trying to bring to bear upon the Corinthian believers and you and I is we have to beware. I love grace. But we have to beware of getting a little too casual sometimes too spiritually. A little too cavalier spiritually. And thinking, oh, I can dabble in this and mess with that. I mean, come on, I'm a mature Christian. I know that stuff's fake. And, and then all of a sudden we're beginning to cross these lines. And I wonder at times if we start to provoke the Lord's jealousy, which never a wise thing to do. Never a wise thing to do. Now, in light of this, we should seek to instead safeguard our relationship with the Lord and uphold his honor as our king. And I think that's why Paul now goes on to give some guidance as he does. Look, as he transitions to verse 23, he says, look, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Great point. All things are lawful for me, he says, but not all things edify. Now, back in chapter six, Paul pointed out this same idea there this same concept of using wisdom and how and when we exercise our freedoms as Christians to participate in certain things or to do certain things. That it's not just do I have the right to do something as a Christian, but instead it's is it right for me to do that as a Christian? 
that it's not just, do I have the right to do that as a Christian? Does the Bible forbid it? Do I have freedom to be able to do that? Is it okay for me to do it? Instead, it should be, is it right in this situation for me to do that as a Christian? Is it the right time for this in my life as a Christian? Or is this perhaps right among this particular group of people for me to do this as a Christian? And that we would think to this degree out of love and maturity because there's a higher law of love. It's the law of love and it's the law of maturity. Two times Paul says here in our verse, verse 23, all things are lawful. And again, the idea there, as we talked about, is many things are permissible now. Many things are allowable to us under the law of grace and love. We're not under the Mosaic law's demands anymore. And so we live under the law of love, a law of liberty in Christ, which means we're free. Listen, we're free to be led by the Holy Spirit rather than a code of codified holiness. We live under the liberty of grace in Christ in such a way where really it's a higher law, the law of the power of the spirit of life governing from within and directing me what is acceptable, what's not acceptable. So therefore, many things become permissible. We have permission to do many things in our walk with Christ. And being under grace, we're allowed to do certain things where we're not violating some code of holiness, but instead we're listening to the Holy Spirit and it may or may not be sin for us to do certain things. We have certain freedoms and allowances. However, those certain things are allowable for me to do as a Christian. Paul says here in the leading of the Holy Spirit, but yet not all things I have the freedom to do, look what he says, are helpful for me to do. Not everything I have the permission to do is actually maybe beneficial for me personally as an individual in who I am and my background or my weaknesses or my person. It may not be helpful for me to do it. Maybe someone else can, but maybe for me, I may have the freedom to do it, but for me, that wouldn't be helpful for me. That wouldn't be beneficial for me. And so therefore, we need to take that into consideration. He says, not all things I have the freedom to do as well, edify, that is help or build up or strengthen other people. So the point Paul is trying to press upon them is that just because something's permitted doesn't always mean it's beneficial. And we have to remember that. We should be considering this as the Lord's people using judgment that even if I can do it, it doesn't mean it's good for me to do it, maybe. Even though you may be able to do that, it may not be helpful for you personally if it's going to hinder you may actually want to consider avoiding it. Yes, I can do that, but that's probably not going to be the most helpful for me or for my walk with the Lord. And it may actually hinder me. So therefore I'm going to abstain. I'm not going to exercise that freedom because I don't think it's helpful for me. In the same way, just because something's permissible for me to do, it doesn't mean it may be helpful for other people. And walking in love, we should consider that as well. That if I do this, will it have a harmful influence upon somebody else? I have the freedom to do that. Well, yeah, you do. You, right, you have the freedom to do it. You have the permissible right to do that. It's not wrong in and of itself. However, though you have the permissible right to do what you want to do, is that going to build up and strengthen other people or could it perhaps hurt other people or stumble other people? And so therefore we take that into consideration in our choices 
to think that through before we make these decisions. So the Christian should always be asking, not just can I do it, but is, is it the most helpful for me thing to do that or could it hinder me to do that? And what's in the best interest of other people? And look, I think this is very, very important to take into consideration. And, and, I, and I think that as we evaluate different areas of our Christian life and we understand grace, we should never forget this this matter because it is a very essential thing of Christian maturity. It really, really is. And it's an area where we can get a little too casual sometimes, a little too cavalier in our attitude, and we want to put our flag in the sand, and we're sometimes not helping ourselves spiritually because we're wanting to exercise some freedom or some permissible option we have with something. Or maybe we're not always thinking about, hey, what's in the best interest of someone else? Paul's going to say in the next verse, don't seek your own, do what's in the other's well-being. Look, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here in regards to something to just say that one of the things that I think to a degree is important to evaluate in the season that we're living in. Okay, And I'm going to address this to some degree to those who are our online community right now. We just passed a year of this whole pandemic situation and everything going on. And look, we've all tried to do our best to use wisdom, to adjust, to, to take safety precautions, to do all the type of things that we're doing. One of my concerns, as well as I shouldn't just say my concerns, the concerns of many ministers and people who care about the flock of God, is that we have come into this place now as the body of Christ where we have become so comfortable with online worship that there are people, our concern are, that are considering at times based more upon just the convenience of being able to do church in their PJs or not have to get up and get in their car and drive out and spend time with people. It's much quicker. I can just flip it on whenever I want. I can skip through worship. Not that they would do that, Tommy. And just watch the Bible study. Or maybe they, maybe they watch the worship and then they skip the Bible study. That may be what goes on too. But my concern is that there are segments of the body of Christ. And I'm not just talking about our congregation. That there are segments of the body of Christ because, look, by nature we're fleshly. Let's be just very candid. Just be very candid. And there are segments of the body of Christ that it may not be foremost just for health reasons with some people. I'm not everybody has to make their own convictions and decisions. I, you know, please I hope my heart is heard in this. But my concern is that there are some people that are taking into consideration just utilizing online worship. And, and w- what are we going to do forever going forward? The body of Christ and the church being together is a biblical essential thing from God's perspective that we're supposed to be doing. And I know that, well, I, I don't lose my salvation if I stay home. I, I can be a Christian and not have to go to the church services. Well, well yeah, I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation. But my question is simply this in love. My question simply is this, and if you're at home to say this, it may be permissible, but is it the most helpful thing for your spiritual life? Is it the most helpful thing for your spiritual life for you to continue to stay home? and do online church continuously. And my other thing is this. There are people here who love you. Your church family loves you. And Paul also says, it's not just what am I allowed to do. Sometimes what I'm allowed to do may not be the most helpful. Look, we all need each other as the body of Christ. And I think we have to ask ourselves as well, look, 
It's not just about me being with my church family for my benefit spiritually, but what about what I offer to the body of Christ to encourage people, to help people, to strengthen other people, that if I'm not there doing that, I'm holding something back from the body of Christ and we all need each other's help. Would those of you who are here this morning at least agree with that and say it out loud? Amen, Amen. right? We need each other. And again, I don't mean criticism in this in any way, and forgive me if that sounds abrasive. I, I at least waited a whole year to say it. But I am concerned, I really, really am, that the devil can at times take something and begin to manipulate our flesh and begin to utilize something in a way where, where it begins to start becoming an unhelpful thing, a hindering thing to Christians spiritually. Look, there are people all over the world, set aside viruses and everything else, there are people in other countries that have been gathering at the risk of their personal welfare for years. And it wasn't the chance of catching a virus, and it is a risk. It was the chance of somebody coming and putting a bullet in their head or murdering their wife or children because they live in countries where Christian persecution is horrific. But they gather for the name of Christ and the sake of the body of Christ because it's what we need to be doing. Guys, the days are dark. We need each other. Times ain't getting better. Times are going to get worse. And we need to stay strong in the Lord. And I think us being together is a great part of that. Let me carry on before I get myself into more trouble or don't finish the passage. Verse 24, Paul says, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So again, what does Paul say there as a mature Christian? Here's his proper perspective as a Christian with a heart of love and a sacrificial spirit. He says, I should always think about not seeking my own interests, But as a Christian, I don't want to become self-absorbed and self-seeking. I should think about not my own interests, my own preferences, or what's best for me, but what's he say? Instead, the other's well-being. Isn't that how Jesus lived? Jesus didn't seek his own. He sought our well-being. And with the Spirit of Christ in us, that's what we should be doing. You know, verse 24 is a great verse. You want to try and put into practice the Word of God this week? Take that one little short verse there. Memorize it. Try and walk that out with your family with your co-workers, with the body of Christ. Try and live that out. It's a challenge, but may the Spirit of God help us to do that. Well, Paul illustrates how in a cultural setting, particularly of Corinth, they could kind of do this, consider the other person's well-being. And this is what he's going to talk about in these next few verses here, in case you get lost in the, uh, the things that he's saying here. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, verse 25, asking no questions for conscience sake. For, he quotes Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. And if any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner, he says, go and eat whatever is set before you. That's important for mission strips if you ever do it. Asking no question, where did this come from or what is it? For conscience sake, he says, look, in order to connect with people, Paul's saying here, In order to connect with people, he's saying, don't close off the opportunity of influence spiritually and don't overthink, Paul's saying, this whole issue about the meat thing and the demons. And Paul's saying, don't overthink the whole thing. Use wisdom, listen to the Holy Spirit, 
But he's saying it's one thing to go to the pagan temple and to sit down in their banquet and to think it's just fun and games and, and participate in what they're doing when it's dark and it's unhealthy. Paul's saying that's one thing, and, and I'm not encouraging that, Paul's saying. You know, th- that wouldn't be healthy to do. But he says it's a whole other thing to eat a piece of leftover meat, a pot roast from a butcher shop, because we know, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all is fullness, and we can thank God for food. God put it on the earth. We need it for our nourishment. And he says, it's a whole other thing to just do that. Paul Paul says in verse 27, look, if any of those who don't believe, non-Christians, if they invite you over to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever's set before you and ask no question for conscience sake. In other words, Paul says, don't say when they invite you to dinner, well, can I ask the pot roast your wife's going to cook? Do you know where it came from? And last I remember, you guys worship at... uh, yeah, what's that pagan temple up the street there? And is it possible? Poss- just don't even do that. They're an unbeliever. They invited you to dinner. <laughs> they need Jesus, Paul's saying. <laughs> just think about their well-being. Just don't overthink it. Just go, enjoy the meal, look for an opportunity to connect with them and use the situation to share the gospel and build a bridge relationally. Paul's saying, think about their well-being, their spiritual welfare. Don't ask questions. Verse 28, he now balances. Look, the Bible's about balance. But if anyone says to you, hey, by the way, that steak you're about to enjoy, temptation, this was offered to idols. Then Paul says, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, For the earth is the Lord's, he quotes the same verse, and all is fullness. Paul says in balance, if they tell you specifically, hey, and they're proud about it. Hey, I hope you really enjoy this pot roast my wife's making. I mean, man, we, you know, we just had a great time up at the temple of Zeus there. And we dedicated this thing and we brought this portion home. And hey, we just, in fact, we want to pray Zeus's blessing over this, uh, you know, meal here. And, And they're making a clear indication that they're openly celebrating some type of spiritual worship to their God, then Paul says, look, for conscience sake, and he says, not your conscience, but their conscience, he says, don't participate. Instead, for their spiritual well-being, it would be better for you then as a Christian, showing your loyalty to the Lord to say, hey, I don't mean to offend, and I'm sure your wife's a great cook, but my love for Jesus makes me concerned about participating in what you're doing in this kind of banqueting thing here you're doing at your table to honor your idol or your God. And so therefore, in that case, I think it would be better for me not to participate. And I don't mean to offend, but I want to honor my Lord in all things. And then you should take a stand for Jesus, he's saying, because that would be for their well-being then you're not compromising spiritually and making a concession. So what Paul's saying in essence is in each circumstance, consider what's best. Listen, consider what's best for the spiritual welfare of the other person. Sometimes Paul says, eat the meat. Don't make an issue about it. Don't ask about it. Other times Paul says, if they tell you something, then don't eat the meat and don't participate. Take a stand. Paul says, always base it off this. What's best for their spiritual welfare in this situation? That's things that we should consider at times. What's best for someone else's spiritual welfare as we interact in relationships? Well, Paul anticipates the argument some believers would have. Verse 29, look what he says. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other, their conscience. But then the argument for why is this liberty judged by another man's conscience? 
But if I partake, verse 30, with thanks, if I can eat it with thanks, why am I evil spoken of? For the food over which I give thanks. Some would say, wait a minute, that's not fair what you're saying, Paul. Why should my liberty, whether I want to eat the filet mignon or not, why should my liberty be restricted just because of what somebody else thinks? I mean, I have rights. I'm a Corinthian, you know. I have rights in my society. I should have the right to do what I want, and I deserve my freedom. One translation renders this. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. You will argue, for why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, then why should I be condemned for eating it? Now, here's what's interesting. It's almost as if Paul doesn't even entertain that selfish mindset. Instead, he takes him to a higher perspective because look what he goes on to say, the very next verse, verse 31. It's like Paul doesn't even engage that. He just, therefore, look, whatever you eat or whatever you drink or whatever you do, what? Do all for the glory of God. Paul says that's how we should be thinking instead. That should be our highest mindset. No matter what the situation or activity Insert that into whatever you do, Paul says. Our foremost goal should simply be to do all things that honor God. What honors God in this situation? Not what's my right, what's my freedom. He says, no, what honors God? How can you honor God in this situation? How can you bring glory to him to think about what would please God and to do things in a matter when we're trying to do them with the quality, the effort, the intention always being, you know what? How can I bring the most honor to God? How can I honor God best in what I'm going to do? And to do everything that we do, he says, whether you're eating, drinking, simple everyday tasks, or whatever you do as a Christian, do it with the quality, the effort, the perspective, the outlook. Does this please God's approval? Does this bring glory to God in the way that I do it or why I do it? He says, that should be the mature mindset. And then secondly, decide about what we do or don't do for another reason. Look what he goes on to say, verse 32. Give no offense either to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, fellow family members in the body of Christ, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, Paul says, but the profit of many that they may be saved. So Paul says, for love's sake, our motivator and why we choose to do or not do certain things should be directed not just about honoring and glorifying God, but also what? Helping people, right? That's what he's coming back to again here. He says, try not to offend or stumble, verse 32. Try not to offend or stumble, whether it's unsaved people. That's never good, right? So he says, whether it's the Jews and their culture and religious ideas, whether it's the Greeks Paul says, look, when it's unsaved people, he's saying, try not to offend them and stumble them. Because if you offend and stumble them, they're not going to care about your Christianity. They're not going to want to hear the gospel. They're not going to want to listen to you talk to them about the Lord. So try not to stumble and offend people. Think about the spiritual opportunity and pay attention so that you can win over their approval and they'll listen to you and respect you. He also says as well, try not to offend, notice, those in the church of God. That is even our spiritual family. We should, for love's sake, try not to offend and stumble one another by what we choose to do or don't do. We should think about, hey, if this is going to stumble a fellow brother in the Lord or somebody in the church, we should think about those things out of love. 
He says as well there, don't allow your selfish nature to direct what you do. He says there, just as I please all men in all things, look at verse 33, he says, not seeking what? My own profit. Paul says, I got to suppress my selfish man within that makes me want to do things seeking my own profit in the situation. What would profit me most? What would benefit me most? What would be the thing that I would prefer that would make me the most happy? Paul says, I got to suppress that. And instead, what do I got to do? He says, instead, I need to think about the profit of many. What pleases and helps others? What benefits others foremost? Again, is Paul talking about being a man pleaser here? That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about being a man pleaser. He's saying it's simply about connecting with people in love to try and influence them for their spiritual good and welfare. That's why we think this way. That's why we consider it. That's why Paul says there that they may be saved, the end of verse 33. That's talking about spiritual welfare. That's why we do this, not to be a people pleaser because I want people's acceptance and approval. But no, what I want to do is I want to be a soul winner, right? I want to be a spiritual helper, whether it's somebody getting saved or somebody being helped spiritually. So the question to ask as Christians becomes this. Does this honor God? And then the second question becomes, will this help others? That's the question. Does this honor God to do this? And does this help other people spiritually for their own welfare? Now, if you need motivation for why that mindset is right, the Holy Spirit gave you one right there in the verse 1 of chapter 11, which I believe fits better with chapter 10. Paul says, imitate me in doing the things he just said, what he does. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Paul says, I'm endeavoring to do this. And he says, here's why. It's the mindset of Jesus. It's our Lord's mindset. Honoring God and helping people was Jesus's mindset. Read the Gospels. What was the one thing Jesus was always most concerned about? The glory and pleasing of his Father in heaven. And what did Jesus also say in regards to helping people? I didn't come to be served. That is to serve my own self-interest, but to serve and to give away my life as a ransom for others to help other people. Again, what a great encouragement for us. Paul says, I'm just trying to imitate Jesus. He's saying, I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> and, I, and I have to wonder, as Paul's writing this letter to Corinth, and it is a very corrective epistle. If at times, you know, Paul's saying, man, I'm sure I'm ruffling their feathers right now. Don't mean to. But Paul's saying, look, I'm not just trying to make this stuff up. My beloved, I love you. And he says, I'm just trying to tell you the way of Jesus. It's the way of our Lord. So he says, join in following my example. I'm trying to imitate Jesus. Follow my example. Would you join me, he says? Join me on this team of trying to imitate Jesus for the glory of God and for the help of other people. Let's stand together. Let's pray.